You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today we are joined by Shelley Coleman-Castell and Jordan Walter. Shelley is the occupational therapy inpatient clinical lead at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. Jordan has been an inpatient occupational therapist at Nationwide Children's for three years. Thank you both for being on the show today. We're happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Um, So you two co-authored, along with Aaron Gates, a case report titled Inpatient Occupational Therapy Management for the Pediatric Patient with COVID-19 and MIS-C, which stands for Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. We want to cover this case report, but before we dive into it, there are some points I'd love to cover to bring myself and the listeners up to speed. Um, First, I've heard a common statement, and I think this is pretty widespread just in the media, that children don't have to worry as much about coronavirus and aren't as vulnerable as other age groups. Um, Personally, I've heard a lot less about kids in COVID-19, but just because a certain population experiences less cases of a disease doesn't mean we should assume they aren't impacted by it. Um, So I want to ask you two, as practitioners who have seen children admitted to the hospital and to the ICU with COVID-19, what would you say to that? That's a big question, and there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, Matt, first, I think we have to acknowledge that under any circumstance, a hospital admission is, is not normal. It's just not a normal thing. And being admitted to the hospital in the middle of a pandemic has taken an already stressful event in the lives of the children that we see and their families and made it even more stressful for the, for those, those individuals. You know, as an occupational therapist, one of the things that we do to help our kids engage in their is engage in their occupations of childhood. And we help parents continue to be parents. And while navigating a hospital stay with an, with additional visitor restrictions and the loss of ancillary access to ancillary services, like our sibling clubhouse has really added an extra layer of complexity to an already stressful time. The pandemic has globally impacted all children that we've worked with within the last year. And I think, you know, the other thing too, is we've also seen a fair number of patients admitted who have been asymptomatic, who are admitted for another reason, and then happen to test positive and are also then placed in other isolation precautions because they have COVID-19. And so I think there it's multi-layered and it's been pretty impactful across the board for all of our patients. With that being said, too, while the statistics indicate that less children have been hospitalized secondary to symptomatic COVID-19, those that have been admitted um, who have had symptoms have become very ill. Um, We've seen that 10% of all admissions are children, um, but one third of those admissions are admitted to the ICU. Many of these admissions with symptomatic COVID-19 have required that high-level ICU care while they're in the ICU. And then also throughout the remainder of their admission, they've required support from several service lines and require ongoing follow-up after discharge to ensure that they safely safely return to their functional baseline. So it's definitely a, a big question, but it has affected us a lot here at a children's hospital too. Absolutely. And 
I, I would want to thank you both for providing care during this this time. I, I can only imagine how difficult it's been um, and how many changes you've had to experience and, and how tough it is to to help any patient, especially a child, in, in their recovery as a therapist. Could you provide a, a summary of how COVID-19 impacts children and adolescents um, and how that is related to Miss C? Definitely. Um, so... As many of us know by now, the typical symptoms for COVID-19 can include, but are not limited to, a fever, cough, congestion, sore throat, shortness of breath, gastrointestinal or GI symptoms, and a loss of appetite or poor feeding for our infants. For our children that have been hospitalized with COVID-19, we can often also see respiratory failure, septic shock, acute renal failure, multi-organ system failure, myocarditis, and what we're going to focus on too is um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, also known as MIS-C. So we've found that MIS-C typically impacts previously healthy children between 6 and 12 years of age. And the common symptoms that have been associated with with MIS-C include fever, rash, shock, coagulopathy, GI symptoms, and cardiovascular dysfunction. And this cardiovascular dysfunction is what we have seen impact our kids the most here. This can include myocardial dysfunction, pericarditis, coronary abnormalities, and clinically, activity restrictions are often imposed by the medical teams. Um, And this is due to the incidence of hypotension, tachycardia, and tachypnea. And these patients are at risk for sudden cardiac death. We have observed that many of our children admitted with symptomatic COVID-19 that are requiring that high-level ICU care have also then been diagnosed with MIS-C. Thank you for kind of that summary. Um, It's really a a laundry list of um, conditions and and complications that can come with COVID-19 in children. How how does your approach to treatment change when you receive a pediatric COVID-19 referral? I wouldn't say that our approach to treatment doesn't necessarily change. It's the precautions and the the precautions that we take for protecting ourselves and our other patients and for infection control that really change. You know, the amount of PPE that we have to wear changes. All of our treatment has to be completed within the confines of the patient's room, whereas oftentimes we are able to at least with some of our patients who aren't on isolation precautions, at least leave the room and walk the hallways of the unit that the patient's on. Generally speaking, the first thing we have to do is develop trust and rapport when working with our pediatric population. And with the amount of PPE that we have to wear, which includes hair nets and face shields and N95 masks, or for those that can't pass a fit mask test, the capper hoods, gowns, gloves, it makes it really hard to to engage because we look scary to the kids. And throughout the admission, we have to continue to utilize our client and our family-centered care with, with our COVID-19 patients. But the first thing and foremost thing that we have to do is develop their trust and for them to know that we are there to work with them and to help them And while things that we may ask them to do is hard, that really our intentions are to help them get better and to get through what they're going through. And we continue to to use 
preferred and age-appropriate activities and the child's occupations to engage our patients and their families despite the differences that they experienced during the hospital admission. And if anything, we've had to get really creative with our treatment sessions to keep kids engaged and motivated to participate while they're stuck in their room. Absolutely. Um, I, I love that answer. And thank you for sharing your perspective and your expertise. I think it's going to be so valuable to our listeners. Um, that's such a great point about PPE. I think the amount of PPE that is in a hospital is scary for adults um, who, you know, have an understanding of its purpose and, and why it's happening. Um, but for a child who maybe doesn't have that full understanding, it, it would be even more frightening. Um, so that's that's really interesting. Um, I, I'm really pumped to start talking about this case application and, and look at some of these interventions that, that you two have been using. Um, but before we do that, I want to ask, when you first started seeing COVID patients, there wasn't really any evidence. Um, so what did you kind of turn to, to to guide your intervention? So as we all have experienced in different, both in work life and personal life, um, navigating the pandemic has been difficult. Um, but navigating the treatment of a pediatric patient with COVID-19 in the hospital has definitely presented us with new challenges and also practice considerations. As you said, due to the novelty of this virus, there's limited literature and we've relied heavily on practice-based evidence and emerging evidence to guide our treatments. At our institution, we are lucky to have a well-established early mobilization program that spans all of our intensive care units. This early mob program allows our therapists to collaborate directly with ICU medical teams, subspecialty services, nursing, and our respiratory therapy staff. Um, and this allows us to promote safe early mobility and return to function. The knowledge and expertise that we have gained from our current Early MOVE initiative was applied towards the treatment of our COVID, our COVID patients in the ICU. And most directly, we've utilized our knowledge of acute respiratory distress syndrome and ICU team collaboration for uh, guiding our initial treatments. And then we also shifted treatments to maintain activity restrictions that were often set forth by the medical teams and also most importantly, to the cardiology teams that were following these MIS-C patients. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. You mentioned that, that you're using practice-based evidence um, or, or have been using practice-based evidence uh, to guide your practice throughout the pandemic. How exactly are you using that internally at Nationwide Children's? Um, and sorry, this is going to be a double-barreled question, um, but uh, how would you recommend that other practitioners could use practice-based evidence in their day-to-day -day as well? So I think here, like I was saying before, I have relied so heavily on what we have learned from our 
um, well-established early mobilization program. Um, and we've relied also on the relationships that we've built with teams through that program and been able to apply it to these COVID-19 patients. Um, a lot of them have been in our pediatric ICU, but they also have aspects of them that, you know, we've learned about our care that we've used in the cardiac ICU too, and then applied it to their their treatment as well. And I think as far as recommendations for other practitioners, I think looking to um, your medical teams for guidance for when they want you to be a part of um, that treatment, and then also utilizing programs that you already have in place and trying to figure out what aspects of those programs can apply to new patient populations. And I think the other thing that I would add to that, Matt, is within our clinical therapies team, which includes not just occupational therapy and physical therapy, but massage therapy and therapeutic recreation, we have identified evidence-based coordinators and we have definitely relied on our evidence-based coordinators to help us stay on top of the evidence that is coming out so quickly and that continue that we feel like continues to change and we learn more every few days and so our evidence-based our evidence-based practice coordinators have definitely been a resource and a help for us in terms of just paying attention to what new symptoms and what new information is coming out from the literature and the other the other resource that we have that I think that we've relied on quite a bit is our epidemiology team and Dr. Washam who is the head of our infectious disease program has headed our covid response here at the hospital and he has been a great resource along with the epidemiology team and just trying to understand what the etiology and the course is for the for our patients, especially those with Miss C and other things that we need to think about. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for giving us a, an insight um, into how that process works uh, at Nationwide Children's. Um, I think that's really helpful. Um, let's go ahead and dive into the case application now. To start off, could you introduce us to the patient referred to in the case as AB? Yes. So... This patient was a 14-year-old male, and he had a past medical history just of asthma before he was admitted. Prior to this hospital admission, he was in ninth grade, and he was attending in-person schooling. He was an active member of his football and wrestling teams and also enjoyed weightlifting, spending time with family and friends outside, and was overall a very active kiddo before he came into the hospital. Another good thing to point out is that he had a very strong caregiver support system, which we relied on heavily throughout his treatment and admission. So he was initially admitted to the hospital with fever, diarrhea, and left neck swelling. Um, and at this time, he was admitted to the infectious disease service, but he fairly quickly um, developed hypoxemia. He was diagnosed with COVID-19 and Shortly after his admission to that service, he was transferred to the ICU. Um, and upon transfer to the ICU, he was diagnosed with severe MIS-C. And when AB was admitted to the ICU, what did your first interaction with him look like? And, and then what kind of treatments did you provide uh, with him while he was intubated and in the ICU? That is a good question and is a loaded question. <laughs> um, so. 
at our institution, OT and PT are automatically consulted on every admission that comes through our ICU. Um, therefore, we first met this patient after um, he arrived in the PICU. So he was intubated, medically paralyzed on vasopressors, and also continuous renal replacement therapy had been initiated. He remained intubated and on CRT for about two weeks. Um, and during this time period was when we completed our initial OT evaluation and gathered some history and an occupational profile from his family um, because both of his parents were able to be at bedside throughout his stay. Due to his very tenuous medical status, we focused more on range of motion, positioning, and delirium education for bedside staff and his caregivers early on. So he was initially on bed rest for quite some time um, because he was so unstable. And at this time, um, with our established early mode program, when kids are on bed, bed rest, we alternate days um, OT between OT and PT to make sure that the patient receives range of motion and positioning at least once daily. We had also provided him with prefabricated resting hand splints, as well as pressure relief ankle foot orthoses to maintain his neutral and functional positioning of his upper and lower extremities while he was medically paralyzed. At this time, we were also able to teach family safe methods and techniques to complete range of motion and positioning. Um, they were a family that felt really comfortable being hands-on, um, and it gave them a sense of autonomy too at the bedside. So we were able to teach family some stuff to work on on the weekends and outside of therapy times too. Another big thing that we stress here and focus on here for our kids in the ICU and especially those with that were as sick as he was, um, we work really closely with the bedside staff and his ICU medical team to decrease delirium and minimize any risk factors that were in place. We provided his parents with education, and also placed a handout in the room to remind staff of the following recommendations. So we typically say lights on and shades open during the day, lights off and limiting sleep interruptions at night, decreased um, or trying to minimize excessive environmental stimulation. We always recommend that providers introduce their role and reorient the patient frequently. This patient was, you know, not super interactive at this time, but we always say, you know, even if family remembers who you are, always reorient yourself to the patient too, um, even if their eyes closed and it appears that they're sleeping. <laughs> we always recommend limiting the number of providers in the room if able to and encouraging family um, if they're at bedside to provide reorientation and assure the patient that they're safe. And we, as a therapy staff, recognize that these recommendations can be very challenging in a hectic ICU environment, but it does allow family to, you know, maintain a, a small sense of control and remain a partner with the medical team during a critical time. So while we weren't, it doesn't, like in the beginning, we weren't doing a ton of, you know, out of bed activity because he was so unstable. There was a lot we still had to work on and a lot of education that we were providing with family. Absolutely. Thank you. I think what you did really touches on some important principles for all therapists to keep in mind. Um, and, and I really love how you uh, were acting kind of as the glue to include the whole 
care team and to include uh, support systems and, and, and family. Um, thank you for, for describing all of that. Um, how did your interventions evolve as AB became more medically stable um, and was able to transfer to the step-down unit? So um, as I had mentioned before, his diagnosis and medical instability greatly impacted his ability to function at his baseline, most notably affecting his participation in ADLs, IADLs, mobility, his communication, and his ability to maintain appropriate sleep hygiene and routines. Our interventions evolved naturally as he became more stable and progressed throughout his admission, but there were a few outcome measurement tools that we utilized to track his progress, and also guide our interventions during both his ICU and step-down admissions. So most notably in the ICU, here we use the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, also known as the RAS, and the Cornell Assessment of Pediatric Delirium, delirium, which we also call the CAPD. Here we use those tools to assess and capture delirium, consciousness, and agitation while he was in the ICU. And these tools are also used by the medical team too um, to determine if patients require pharmacological medications to help with delirium and things of that nature. But we use these tools to guide our treatments and determine how alert he was and then how we may be able to engage him appropriately. So we were able to watch these scores progress throughout his stay. Um, and luckily, as he was here longer, they did you know, get to a point where they, they indicated that he had delirium. But then as he started to improve, um, he had a decrease in delirium and he was able to return to a typical alert state. And then additionally, here at our hospital, as an OT and PT team, we use the AMPAC. Specifically for our OT team, we use the AMPAC daily activity short forms to track functional progress, progress and independence with ADLs. So during his initial evaluation, he was either requiring total assistance or he wasn't medically appropriate to participate in any of his typical basic ADLs. Luckily, over his Throughout his admission, his raw scores trended upwards, indicating that he was consistently improving um, in his independence with ADLs and progressing towards meeting some of his self-identified goals. And at discharge, he was completing pretty much all of his ADLs with either supervision or modified independence. That's wonderful and, and such a great outcome. Um, I, I love how you were able to, to measure and track it uh, using those uh, standardized tools um, throughout AB's care. Uh, in, in your case outline, um, or in your case, you, you outline uh, interventions related to range of motion, strength, functional endurance, ADLs, IEDLs, and functional cognition. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more in depth uh, about each of these interventions. Um, so starting with Number one, range of motion, strength, and functional endurance. Uh, what was AB's initial status? Uh, what specific interventions did you implement? And then how did his performance change with those interventions? Definitely. So as we were looking at this case, we felt like it made sense to break up our interventions into these three 
domains um, as they're very pertinent to OT, but also um, to this patient and his family's identified goals. And then we also wanted to note here that this patient's cardiology team had identified a few activity restrictions during his admission, and then he had to follow these restrictions at time of discharge too. And these were that he needed to maintain a heart rate rate of less than 150 beats per minute during mobility. We were to stop mobility of his heart rate increase greater than 20 beats per minute from his baseline. He was clear to facilitate low-level strengthening and endurance, but only for function in order to complete ADLs at home. So he was cleared to facilitate uh, just low-level strengthening and endurance activities for function just to complete ADLs at home, and he was also instructed to not participate in any resistance training activities. And I wanted to talk about those first because we had to, you know, base our treatments and interventions based off of these new restrictions um, for this patient too. So for his range of motion and strength treatment domain, after we moved past the kind of the very unstable point where we were just doing passive range of motion and positioning in the ICU, we began to incorporate active assisted and active range of motion against gravity to promote improved functional strength. He was eventually provided with a written exercise program that he we asked him to complete outside of therapy times while he was here in the hospital. This had outlined upper extremity and trunk and cervical stretches to focus on regaining some of that joint mobility and strength. And another major area that we placed a lot of emphasis on was his postural strengthening. Um, And this was in order to improve his chest wall mobility, diaphragmatic strengthening, and upright tolerance um, in preparation for return to school. Because one of his major goals was was that he wanted to go back to in-person schooling, and he wasn't super interested in doing um, classes online, which I can appreciate. (laughs) Yeah, I think I can relate to that as well. Um. Yeah. Thank you. Was there was there anything else uh, related to those range of motion, uh, strength, or endurance interventions that you wanted to add? Um, at time of discharge, we he did get a home program from both OT and PT, outlining some additional exercises to work on at home. And uh, we actually did not do any outpatient therapy referrals because these were going to be guided by his Miss C follow up appointments, since he was so limited in kind of what he could participate in at that time. Absolutely. Thank you. How about um, those interventions specifically related to ABs, ADLs, and IEDLs? What interventions were you implementing and how did his performance change? So uh, before he came into the hospital, he was completing all of these age-appropriate tasks independently. Um, And one of his goals and his parents' goals was to return to that. Um, So Once appropriate, and he was cleared by his medical team, we initially were co-treating with PT to practice sitting edge of bed and out of bed transfers to and from the recliner in his room. And then while seated at the edge of the bed, we facilitated participation in bed level ADLs, such as upper body dressing and grooming, um, 
And once he had kind of mastered those, we progressed to splitting OT and PT sessions so that he would then get two therapies a day. And we began to work on toileting on the bedside commode and just short distance functional mobility to complete some standing level grooming activities at the sink. So it was around this time where we started training family and educating them on completing safe um, functional transfers and helping him with bed mobility. So that way he had more opportunities to participate in these activities outside of therapy times. We also had him participate in some functional tasks to simulate some household chores. I think that was more of a parent goal than a patient goal. But one of his chores before he came in was folding laundry um, and helping with some meal prep things too. Um, So we had him reaching into some overhead cabinets in his room and also folding um, some like hospital linens and hospital clothes. And this was kind of a twofold task. It was helping to simulate some IADLs that he participates in at home, but also worked on improving his dynamic standing balance and just um, overall functional endurance. We provided a lot of education regarding maintaining those activity restrictions and also just the use of energy conservation principles while completing his ADLs. And some of those things were just like taking rest breaks, providing more time in the mornings to get ready and things of that nature. I think I had mentioned before, but at discharge, he was completing all of his ADLs with just like intermittent close supervision and modified independence. And I think the energy conservation piece here was really critical for AB. I know in talking to Jordan and in talking to the PT that worked with him more closely than I did, he initially, when he started doing overhead reaching and overhead activities, even opening up an overhead cabinet once, his heart rate would shoot up to that limit, that 150 beats per minute. And so really, I think that speaks to the level of deconditioning that he experienced while he was admitted and how hard his cardiovascular system was working as he was recovering because of the because of the MIS-C and especially the cardiac impacts of the MIS-C. Absolutely. Thank you for, for painting a picture of that. Um, it, it sounds like your process and your interventions were wonderful in, in helping AB um, achieve the outcomes that, that he wanted to um, and, and regain um, his function and, and performance. Um, and how about that third area, the functional cognition? Um, what were you addressing or doing in, in interventions related to functional cognition? Um, and how did that help um, AB in his recovery journey? Yeah, so um, as I had mentioned before, because of where his CAPD scores were, he did experience some delirium during and after his ICU stay. And I think a lot of this had to do also with his limited sleep hygiene and sleep routine. And we try to put those recommendations in place, but there's only so much that ICU staff can do, especially for someone who is so tenuous. So once he was more alert, um, but still intubated, we did provide him with his cell phone and also a whiteboard and marker. Um, And this allowed him to communicate with his family and his staff and indicate if he had pain or needed to be repositioned or things like that. 
but we also tried to stick to those initial recommendations and we told family to provide his phone at, at some points, but also to, to take it away too, if, um, you know, it was causing him to stay up late or anything like that. We had put in place a schedule for lights on and off and limited that technology use. And this was so that we could maximize the time that he was awake during the day and just optimize his sleep at night. Once he was on the step-down unit and a little more mobile, um, he was encouraged to transfer up to his recliners for all of his his meal times, just because we talked through how at home he likely doesn't eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner in bed. <laughs> um, and so that was something that helped a lot. And then we eventually were able to engage him in some higher level cognitive tasks, such as sequencing, problem solving, and some memory activities. But overall, all of these interventions were planned to promote progression towards his client-centered goals and just return him to his baseline level of participation in preferred occupations and activities. That's that's awesome. Um, thank you for outlining all these interventions. I think hearing uh, specifically what was used in this case can be helpful um, to practitioners working with uh, patients in, in a similar circumstance, uh, I guess I should say. Uh, what kind of things did you do to motivate and encourage AB to engage in therapy and work towards achieving all these positive outcomes? So I would say we were very lucky with this patient. He was pretty motivated on his own to participate in therapy, but there were a few things that we did to kind of push him along too. So he had self-identified several goals during our early treatment sessions. And these were aimed towards return to sports, independent completion of his ADLs and mobility, and also that return to in-person schooling that we had mentioned before. So during our sessions, we utilized age-appropriate and function-based interventions and strategies. And we had included him and his family in goal setting and treatment planning. Um, in order to ensure that it was as client-centered as possible and improve his motivation. And I would say one other thing that we did that really helped him and his family was creating a kind of a rough schedule for him. So, you know, waking up at this time and going to bed at, a, at this time and then having OT in the mornings and PT in the afternoons. So that way they had time to work on, you know, other things throughout the day too outside of therapy as well. Absolutely. I love that. Um, and I think you've already touched on uh, how you were able to involve and, and instruct um, AB's parents uh, in, in his care and how important that was to his progress. So uh, unless there's something else you want to touch there, uh, I, I just want to ask what tips or recommendations uh, you could give to help practitioners work with the families of pediatric patients. And I think one of the things that you have to do to make good recommendations with any pediatric patient is to really understand the context of the family and what the home setup is like and what resources the family has available to them, along with what social supports they have. You know, once you have a good picture and an understanding of those, of those things, you can really work with the family to make recommendations that are meaningful and that the family can then successfully implement. And I think that's one of the biggest things is making sure that the family and that the whole treatment team, which includes the family and the patient, are involved in making those recommendations. 
Absolutely. I love that. Um, in, in AB's case, uh, what, what discharge recommendations did you provide for him and his family? So we were able to give them several recommendations at time of discharge. Um, a few of the things that we recommended using were a tub transfer bench, a bedside commode, installation of shower grab bars, and also the use of a removable shower head. And I had recommended all of these just A, to optimize his ability to be independent, but also to optimize his safety at home. Like Shelly and I had mentioned earlier, earlier, we talked a lot with the family on those energy conservation techniques, um, as well as a few home modifications to minimize any of that unnecessary exertion and maintain those activity restrictions. He was also provided with a home program from OT and then also PT. And these just outlined range of motion stretches and some low-level strengthening within the, fun- within the context of functional tasks. And I think I mentioned earlier, but we didn't give him an outpatient referral because he was going to be following up in a MISC clinic. And we wanted to wait until he was cleared for any additional activity before giving any additional outpatient referrals. Awesome. Well, thank you. I think uh, you've really painted a a nice picture of the whole OT process um, from AB's initial evaluation up through through discharge. Um, And I think there's so much to to glean and and learn from uh, what what you did with AB and and his experience. Um, What recommendations in general um, would you two give to practitioners uh, who work with pediatric COVID-19 patients? First and foremost, it's important to be mindful of the acti- of the activity restrictions and limitations that are set forth by the medical teams. That way, you can safely treat your patient during their admission or in whatever setting you're really working with that patient in. Because there is, especially with Miss C, such a risk for sudden cardiac death, it's really important to pay attention to perceived exertion, the, his heart rate, and some of those other restrictions that are put in place really by the medical team and by the cardiologists that are following him. It's, I think, also important to provide good homegoing recommendations within the guise of those activity restrictions and limitations and really do a lot of education with families on how to modify activities. And I would further, you know, again, just really hitting home the recommendation on education with energy conservation and allowing kids and their families to still to allow kids and their families to still be able to participate in all of their occupations. I think it's really just talking about this isn't a permanent change and this is just really modifications that we need to put in place to help you while you continue to get better. Because I think one of the things that we're faced with the pediatric population with COVID-19 is we don't know what long haul symptoms are going to look like and how long we're going to see those kinds of deficits. And so just really being mindful of what's going on medically and how to adapt based on the medical restrictions that the patient has. Awesome. Thank you. Those are wonderful recommendations. Um, Before we go into our concluding segment and and questions now um, of the show, is there anything else either of you wanted to add uh, in regards to the AB case application or uh, what we've covered in general? And the only other thing that I would add is really um, in thinking about AB in this case and how important interdisciplinary care 
is, especially for making best recommendations for patients and families and really working closely with your medical providers and with any other any other practitioners who are working with that patient just to make sure that all of your recommendations are following the same guidelines, that you're all on the same page and reinforcing the same messages, that really that multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary care is key and I think is what helps set a lot of our kids and families up for success. You know, like I said, one of the things that I think we just don't know and that really hasn't been talked about and isn't being talked about as much with the pediatric population as it is as it is with the adult population is what long haul symptoms look like for pediatric COVID patients and you know what ongoing physical and cognitive deficits could potentially look like for these kids. Wonderful. Thank you for uh for touching on that as well. On to our conclusion though, I, I just have two more questions for you. Um, first being, what resources would you recommend to practitioners who would like to learn more about working with pediatric patients who have COVID-19? And I think like we said at the beginning, there really aren't a ton of resources out there. I know that we have utilized the resources that and articles that have come out of OT practice that have come out through AOTA and through APTA for current best practice recommendations. We've also utilized the information and the resources that we have with our physicians, especially with our infectious disease team and our epidemiology team, and talking with your own facilities medical teams to further determine those activity restrictions and recommendations because they can differ across settings and across age and across ages. Absolutely. Thank you. We're on to the last question now. This is the golden nugget segment of the show. <laughs> um, so this, this question is for both of you. What is something you have learned during this pandemic that you would like all practitioners to know? So uh, we have definitely learned a lot <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, but I think something that has definitely come out of our this past year is that OT plays a distinct role in the treatment of a positive COVID-19 pediatric patient, especially with Miss C in an acute care hospital setting. As we know, as OTs, we provide recommendations and intervention strategies that can facilitate a safe return to participation in preferred occupations. There are few other providers who are spending as much time as we are with the patient actually at the bedside and spending prolonged periods of time with these patients and their families. An OT is able to provide a holistic client and family-centered and also evidence-based treatment approach in order to achieve best outcomes for that patient. I would say we've also learned that the impacts of the pandemic have reached far greater than just children who were infected, and it had many psychosocial implications on other patients, families, and our staff across the acute care setting. As Shelley noted, there's limited evidence surrounding best practice principles for OT evaluation and treatment for these patients, but it definitely warrants additional research and studies in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for that golden nugget. And, and Shelley, is there a, a golden nugget you'd like to share as well? And I think we've touched on it, and I would just add that continuing to include the patient and the family so that we can provide that truly distinct OT 
intervention and the in really the OT process. And I key to us as OTs and one of the cornerstones of our practice is our therapeutic use of self. And I think during the past year and throughout this pandemic, I, that is one of the things that I think we as OTs really distinctly bring to the treatment team is our ability to really engage and meet the patients where they are and create that authentic space so that we can really provide good intervention and therapy for our patients. Awesome. That's an, a wonderful message to end on, I think. Uh, thank you both so much for your time and for being on the show. Um, it's been It's been great having you on. Thank you so much. It's been great. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.